Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, again, good morning, Covenant. We are in a series called Release the Arrows, week two. So if you missed last week, let me give you kind of a rundown so you'll get a sense of of the baseline off of which we're launching. The 127th Psalm, verse 4, says that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. That's the metaphor we want to unpack. We want to use Scripture to do that because at Covenant, we believe Scripture interprets Scripture, and we want to spend the next seven weeks or so from this point forward talking about what it means to raise children. And that's not just for biological parents, moms and dads. That's for grandparents. That's for grandparents that find yourself, uh, for various and sundry reasons, maybe raising your grandchildren. That's for legal guardians. That's for uncles and aunts. That's for those of you who work in, in Covenant Kids. That's for those of you who see a kid when you walk on campus. This involves the entire Covenant family, obviously, uh, for, for reasons that should be obvious. It's going to aim, be aimed more specifically at parents. And, and we're going to begin today by talking about the various stages of life. So over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about human development, what Scripture says about human development, and how that relates to the raising of children. And we start today with the youngest ones. So from the time they're born, from the time you bring them home for the very first time, until roughly the teenage years, or at the very least when they get out of elementary school. Uh, They kind of look, well, we have a picture here from some years ago, and if you'll just take a look at this, this was a publicity picture we took for Covenant Kids. That picture was taken five years ago. Now think about what you were doing five years ago. Probably wasn't very, right? It wasn't that long ago, was it? Every one of those suckers is in high school now, okay? You feel old already? All right, it, it's coming. I remember in 2005, Amy and I moved from South Carolina to Howard County, Maryland, roughly 50 miles east of here. And that's where we would spend the next 18, well, the next 11 years of our life and ministry, in investing in ministry and mission and all that stuff on five continents. When we came, we had one child, he was four years old. 11 years later, we come having the high privilege of serving this church body with not one child, but three who were aged 15, 10, and seven. Like we, we grew in size and then they grew in age. We got here in January of 2005 and in February, my wife brings me this little stick with these two blue lines on it and I'm thinking something's in the water. Right, so it, very, very quickly after that, and Seth was born, uh, some like eight, nine months later, and then, and then comes Gracie in 2010, and and so there's our children, right? That was that was almost seven years ago. So now, after that, just what seems like a, just a really brief period of time that has flown by since we first came to Covenant, we have one that is pretty much, for all intents and purposes, out of the house and raised and on his own, and two more who are in high school. Here's my point. To those of you that, especially those of you that Amy and I have had dinner with, a bunch of you, that you got young ones at home, and for some of you it's the, I can't wait till they start sleeping through the night. I didn't know sleep was optional until I had this kid. 
Some of you are like, I can't wait till they stop talking so much. They're toddling around the house. I I can't wait until at least one of them gets old enough that we don't have to hire a babysitter just to go out on a date. Um, Let me give you some hope. That moment's coming. Let me give you a warning. It's going to come like that. Brother, sister, younger brother, younger sister, you're going to blink, and they're going to be there, which is what makes this issue so imminent, right? I just saw somebody, I'm not going to out them, but somebody's nodding their head, and, and she's going to be the mother of the bride really soon. So she knows, right? How many of you, the rest of you, are like, you already seen your kids get married, and you're like, yeah, it comes quick. It comes quick. So this, this happens, and, and so... Children at that early age, from infancy through the, the elementary school years, it's really important that we build in a good foundation before they get there. And also, I think it's important to note at the outset, those children at that age exemplify to us, probably more than, than our kids at any other stage of development, the wonder that God intends for all of us to have at his creation. They just do. They're just they're just so they're innocent in the way that they look at them. And they're not innocent. They've got sin in their hearts. If you've been a parent for longer than 15 minutes, you know they're they're not just cute and innocent, but they're innocent in the way that they look at the world. And when it comes to young children, there's actually a lot of wonder at their creation also. And let me tell you, one of the reasons for that is the fall. When our first parents disobeyed God in the garden. Scripture tells us that a sin curse fell on the whole world, all of humanity. Creation began to collapse in on itself. And among other things, human development was affected by that. Our ability to grow physically, our ability to grow emotionally as we were supposed to. But we don't know exactly what that effect was because none of us were there. We didn't see it. Even Moses, who writes that early piece of, of divinely inspired history for us wasn't there. And so we don't know exactly what, we, we do know that prior to the fall, the purpose of God was that we would be born and that we would grow and develop. God said, if you'll remember to Eve at the curse, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. So the, the pain involved in that process is a result of the fall, but apparently childbirth itself was to be a part of the grand plan of God, to populate the earth with people created in his image, bringing him glory. And then it is said of Jesus at the end of Luke chapter 2 that he increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. That's a text we're going to unpack next week when we talk about teenagers. That one will be fun. In wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. And, he, and that he did so in absolute perfection So that this whole process of being born, growing up, developing physically, going through puberty, developing mentally, developing psychologically, socially, all of that was part of God's original plan, every bit of it. But because of the sin curse, so early in the story, we don't really have an example until we get to Jesus of what any of that was supposed to look like in a perfect world. Now, why is that important? Because this series is called Release the Arrows. Parents, grandparents, godparents, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters in Christ in the church, our responsibility is to build children in our midst so that they can be released, and it's critical that they start early. And when it comes to these early stages of development, Scripture tells us in various places, and we're going to go to those places today, that there are five primary needs that they have. So from the time you bring them home from the hospital, my father even talks about this. I, I 
I was on the road for a really, really long time this week, coming back, driving back from Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was on the phone with my dad for about an hour and a half of that. And, and it was, it was just a really sweet time. I was just catching up with my father and, and, and he brings this up sometimes. He's like, yeah, I still remember bringing you home from the hospital. I remember sitting on the couch holding you going, what in the world have I done? And what in the world am I going to do with you? And it was around that time I heard your mama holler from the car. Are you going to come help me get out of the car? Right? We all start there. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. Until they reach the age that we're going to talk about last week, five primary needs. Here's the first one, moms and dads, grandparents, brothers, and older brothers and sisters in the family faith. They need our protection. Protection. Now, that, that, that there are all kinds of different dynamics around that term protection. So let me, let me unpack those. For one, just of all mammals on the planet, human infants are truly the most helpless. That should probably be obvious if you've had one. They just are. Anthropologists refer to it by saying they're the least competent of all the mammals. Yeah, most other mammals, you, you think about horses, you think other kinds of livestock, you think about any, any kind of mammal. They give birth and that animal has to learn very quickly or it's going to die. And we know that's also true of, of humanity. I mean, they, infants become toddlers. We call them toddlers. You know why we call them toddlers? Because they toddle. Yeah. And we say, how adorable. Any other mammal in the jungle, that's called prey. It's just going to get slaughtered, right? But we, we look at that and we go. And so with that in view, it's just common sense to everybody. You don't have to be Christian. This is just, uh, this is just an observation of common grace that the primary need of a small child is protection. This is why we have laws about seat belts and booster seats and childproof caps on our medicine bottles and rules in our homes about everything from ingesting glue to running with scissors. It's why outside the, the confines of the home, we have a social safety net that involves public schools and CPS and, uh, and, and social workers and others to ensure that neglected children get what they need in this area. But there's biblical precedent for this as well. I'll give you a couple examples. Exodus chapter 2. There's an Egyptian pharaoh in that story who, out of fear, orders his army to kill every, first, every son born to the Hebrew slaves. And in the midst of the slaughter, there's this woman who gives birth to a baby, and she names him Moses. Even Moses had a mama. And in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 2, it says, When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Parent protecting her child. We read a similar story in Matthew that actually has a, a historical, a, narrative, a lot wider narrative connection to the Exodus story. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Children need our protection. And obviously, that begins with the physical protection that we've just seen described that just common sense would tell us from the time they're born until they're old enough to learn how to protect themselves. And along that way, there's not just a, a, a binary switch that all of a sudden you go, okay, kids, you're on your own, is there? 
You're going to provide a level, a level of full protection, and as they get older, your level of protection goes down as they can learn to protect themselves. Here's my point. That should happen physically, but it should also happen in every other aspect of their life. They need your mental protection. They need your emotional protection. They need your spiritual protection. This is why we screen movies before we let them see them. This is why we sometimes keep them from other people, even family members that we think might be an influence on them that might be harmful or toxic. And it's why, among many other reasons, that we can and we should teach them to obey us. I'll get to obedience and discipline in just a moment, but, but one of the reasons children need to be disciplined and need to learn obedience is so that we can protect them. In a parking lot, for example, Amy and I, very early in all three of our kids' lives, taught them, ground in them, actually put a fear of us in them to expect immediate, unquestioned obedience. Not because we were narcissistic, but because when your five-year-old is running out in traffic and you say, stop, you don't want them turning around asking why as they're simultaneously stepping out in front of a moving car. We do that for their protection, all right? So that, that's part of it, all right? So let, this would be good, especially if you're brand new as a parent, you're still trying to figure all this out and you're reading blogs and you're on social media sites and you've got groups where you get together with other parents and you figure it out and you've read a bunch of books, which is that, none of that's bad. Get all the information you can, trust me. <laughs> get all the information you can. But, but you're trying to figure out, well, what, what do I do with, with the obedience part? Make them behave. Make them obey. Okay, I'm not saying this from an ivory tower. I got three of them. Do it. And when they're this size, because I said so is the only reason they need mom and dad. That's it. Okay. If if your four-year-old is running toward a power socket with a screwdriver, they don't need a lecture about metal conduction, insulators, rapidly moving electrons. They need to learn no. Right? And there need to be consequences when they don't respond immediately to know. Otherwise, in that environment, when they're that small, you're not protecting them. And yet, here's, a, here's another kind of protection they need. The protection of a stable family. Now, let me, let me say this. We have a lot of blended families in our church, and I am so thankful you're here. We have a lot of single parents in our church. I'm very thankful that you're here. What I say in the next few moments might be construed as somehow casting aspersion on you. Listen, single moms especially, they're some of the biggest heroes I've ever met. Nothing I'm about to say should be construed as as looking at you as some kind of second-class citizen or talking about you like you don't. Hopefully what you'll hear is your pastor's warning to some folks that haven't been through some of the things you've been through just yet. So hopefully maybe they can stave that off. Okay, but here, here's what I want to say. Some people struggle with this. Well, like, okay, we've got kids now, right? It was just us, but now we have children and, and our culture has kind of sold us a bit, bill of goods that your home should center around the children. If your home centers around the children, then once they grow up and leave, your home will have no more center. You say, okay, well, the home, well, okay, so you're telling me it should center around my marriage. No. It should center around Jesus. 
It should center around Jesus. Then, right in line right after that, yeah, it's your marriage. The United States has 5% of the global population, 50% of the world's divorces. 28% of children in this country, richest, most prosperous nation that's ever existed in all of human history. 28% of our children live in poverty. And to a large extent, and this is what some people won't tell you because they don't, well, we don't want to be too judgy. It is connected in an irrefutable way to the breakdown of the family. It's connected to other things as well, but that's a big one. When mom and dad grow apart because of the children, it does no favor to the children. It's a disservice to the children. And the reason, actually, biblically, is quite simple. Genesis 2.24, every family that exists starts on the following foundation. Therefore, a man, and this, is, this is universal, right? This is not one of those texts, well, well, there was a context, there was a culture. Sometimes that's the case. This comes right on the heels of God's description of the created order, so rooted in the divine design for creation, a man leaves his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The best protection you can give your children is the assurance that mom and dad have a strong marriage. And the only way to assure that is if your children know that your relationship with your spouse takes priority. I love y'all, but I love your mama and we're going out tonight. And now that they've gotten to be, the youngest have gotten to be teenagers, they're like, oh, again? Yeah, you'll appreciate it one day. But even if you don't, I'm taking mama out tonight. Right? We're, we're going to make this a priority. And, and if, moms, do you hear me? You hear what I'm saying? Somebody's going to try to guilt you into thinking you're not a good mother if you don't leave them little suckers at home and go out with dad every once in a while. And the only thing that's going to happen is you're just going to get grumpy and then there's going to be resentment. And when that man makes plans for dinner, go, go, enjoy. And if he don't make plans, you make some. Tell him your pastor said it was okay and that he's supposed to go with you and that he's supposed to pay for it, right? But make that a priority, right? Make it a priority. Four years ago, we lost uh, a president. George H.W. Bush led this nation from 1989 to 1992. He passed away in his 90s. He was eulogized by his son, also former president, George W. Bush. And I, and I remember watching, I, I didn't watch it live. I went back later and I watched because I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm thinking, man, I hope my boys talk about me like that when I'm gone. It was amazing. It was moving. Former President Bush got up and just with repeated breakdowns and tears, said he was the best father a son could ever have. But you know what I noticed about his eulogy? He said nothing about filling the calendar with all kinds of activities and play dates, nothing about matching monogrammed shirts. I mean, this is the Bush family. He could have talked a lot about that kind of stuff, right? You know what he did? He repeatedly spoke with high admiration for how much his father loved his mother. Give your kids that protection. Protect them physically, to be sure. But as a parent, you know, let's make sure we're also protecting them in every other way. And then within that circle of protection, there's a second need they have. And that need is for 
instruction. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's a biblical way to say, I told you so, is, I, I, I said so is enough. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land because as a general principle, if you don't listen to the first authority in your life, you're going to have hard encounters with subsequent authority in your life. And you, you might die from some of that. And so you're going to do dumb things if you don't listen to mom and dad. Dumb things. And some of those things might be precipitated by a statement like, hey, y'all, watch this. And I get that. I have boys. I, but, but you listen to your, honor them. And then comes this statement. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there's, there's a couple of corollary emphases here. They don't contradict each other. They're two sides of a coin. The first is that, that children need to learn obedience. When they're small, especially, they need to learn obedience. One British cultural observer wrote the following after a trip to the United States many, many years ago. I am amazed at how well American parents obey their children. There's this idea of, of permissive parenting characterized by low expectations and high response. So you're always there, right? You're always there, but there's no real expectation. There's, no, there's nothing that's really said. You're not a parent. You're a maid. You're a chauffeur. You're a, that parenting, you got to get those expectations up there. High response is important. High expectation is important. I watched a child psychologist explain this at one point, applied to how a parent should respond to a tantrum in the grocery store. Nobody in here has ever experienced that, but just, you know, let me talk about what that looks like. The kids see something on their level, and grocery stores are evil for marketing that stuff, aren't they? They put it right. They know exactly what shelf to put it on. Kid wants a cookie. You say no kid throws a fit. Kid starts screaming. Maybe the kid throws himself or herself in the floor. Maybe the kid is flailing as you're trying to get control of them. What do you do? And this particular professional said, the child doesn't have a more mature way of expressing his or her displeasure. That's absolutely true. When they're that age, yeah. So don't, don't get angry with them when they do that. That's right. They, they don't know. They have no other way. Plus, they're little sinners. So depravity has kicked in, right? Piaget called it egocentricity. Scripture calls it total depravity. It's the same thing, all right? And, and so that, that stuff kicks in. And, and so what do you do, though, right? It's right, so one thing to recognize this is the problem. This was the this was this particular psychologist's solution. It's the parent's responsibility to let the child know he or she understands. Get at eye level with the child and say, you want the cookie? You want, you want the cookie? I understand. You want the cookie. That's not how we responded to our kids, just so you know. Um, and, and, it's, and it's probably a good thing because a 2014 study 
suggests that this style nearly triples the chance of raising a child with major impulsivity issues. You want them diagnosed with ADHD at 20? I'm not an ADHD. I got an ADHD diagnosis. That doesn't mean mom and daddy did anything wrong, okay? But if you want to more greatly guarantee some impulsivity issues, this would be a way to do it, according to a 2014 study. It tripled, furthermore, the chance this child will become a heavy drinker by his teens. An earlier study conducted seven years earlier concluded the following. Children under this model never learn to control their own behavior and always expect to get their way. So here's where some real simple biblical truth comes to the rescue, moms and dads. God has ordained that the world presently operate on spheres of authority. Parents are the first expression of authority in a child's life. If parental authority is not asserted, few other expressions of authority in that child's life will be respected. We've got some public school teachers in this room right now that can testify. We've got some former public educators that that designation former is there because we don't get this. Something goes wrong, it's always the teacher's fault. When I was growing up, I had a two-for-one. That was My dad called it a two-for-one special. You get a whipping at school, you get another one when you get home. All right? Now, should we go back to that? I don't, I'm not saying we ought to go back to some, I, no. But I am saying that we have lost something in our, in our, I don't know, what do we call this progress? We have lost something in our move forward in history of this idea that there is authority. Mom, dad, God granted you authority over that kid. Use it. Use it. Here's the other side, okay? Fathers, and I think it's interesting here that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, singles out dads for this. Men, I think we ought to listen to this. And I think from experience now, having raised two sons, I know a little bit more what this means than I did when I was in my 20s. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, to anger. Permissive parenting strips the child of a sense of authority that can kill them authoritarian parenting is equally un, un, unhealthy. Permissive parenting, low accountability, high response. Authoritarian parenting, high accountability, low response. They know you're large and in charge, but they hardly, if ever, see you engaged. And what that does is they rarely, if ever, sense love from you is it's going to bring out the worst in them, which is basically what this means. Which says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. It means don't bring out the worst in your kids. And again, having been a father now for 22-plus years, I think I've learned from experience that I am more prone than their mother to bring out the worst in my kids. I am. I think there's a reason Paul takes aim at dads in that. Because there's a way, right? I, I, I raise, we, we raise our sons a little differently than we raise our daughters. They're different. I know that's supposed to be a big surprise these days, but they really are. Um, and I'm, I'm, I tend to be, I've tended to be a little harder on my boys. But there have also been times when I've had to go back and make things right because I recognize that a response in me that came out of me toward them for something they did that rightly frustrated me and was, could accurately be called stupid. I mean, 
right? I'm not, even if they did wrong, the way in which I responded to it did not correct it, and it certainly did not bring out the best in my boys, which is what their father's responsible to do. Instead, it brought out the worst in them. And I've had to go back and tell my sons that I'm sorry. I've had to make things right. And they're forgiving kids, so it, it's, it's, it's good. It's good. But, but I, I, I think about those experiences now in a way that I didn't when I was studying this verse in seminary. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Faithful parental instruction brings them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That requires discipline. All right, so, so protection is the number one need. Instruction, and then thirdly, discipline. And this takes us back to Deuteronomy 6. Verse 7 is, in particular says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, we think of discipline and automatically equate it with punishment, Fact is, parental discipline includes punishment. It includes consequences. Make sure my child experiences things that are unpleasant when they do things that are not wise so they learn not to do those things. But, it, but, but discipline is not merely reactive or reformative. The Deuteronomy passage reminds us that discipline starts in a formative way. Kids need structure. They need moral structure and spiritual structure. And they need that structure to be consistent. You need to pray with your kids. You're like, I don't, I'm not good at prayer. That's okay. Let them know that you're not good at prayer, and then they'll know, you know what, it's okay if I'm not good at prayer. That means I can still pray. If you're all veeing and vowing in front of your kids, how are they ever going to learn to pray if they don't watch you stumble through it? Pray with your children. Read Scripture with your children. Bring them to worship with God's people. Nobody will ever influence their child's spiritual life like you will. And that includes even the church because even if you bring them every week, we get them for one to two hours and that's it. You got them the rest of the time. So what are you doing to bring them up in the nurture, the discipline, the admonition of the Lord? They need formative discipline. That includes their education. What's going to be the best approach to that? Not just what kind of school system are you going to put them in, although that's an important question, but, but how are you going to ensure that they're prepared for whatever it is God has called them to do with their life? Their diet, and I'm such a hypocrite about this. Because I'm the one that when Amy would go away to teach a conference somewhere and she would look at the kids when they were small and say, all right, your daddy's got you, their first response was, yay, candy! Um, every once in a while, that's okay. That's okay. But they do need a regular structure, diet, exercise, play, chores. Get them doing some things early. I made jokes when my kids were like in diapers about why didn't he go cut the grass? Like why make himself useful? But, but there is a place starting really early where they start to learn how to share responsibilities in the household. This is how you learn how to be a family. Raise them up with that necessity, spiritual formation. They also need reformative discipline. That's a nice churchy way to say they need to be punished sometimes, okay? Um, it's funny to watch the progression, even in theologians. Martin Luther, 
father of the Protestant Reformation. He's the reason we're sitting here today and, and not all of us aren't Catholic is because of, of Martin Luther. Early in his ministry, Luther claimed that teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you couple that with the Old Testament law, especially around children, that was, he actually called it heresy. He said doing that is to deny the gospel. And then some years later, Martin Luther pulled a complete 180. You know what happened? He had children. He had a son. And in having a son and raising that son, I think he discovered the utility of teaching the Old Testament and the first line of his catechism for children. Hear ye children and learn the law of God. Thou shalt not. Small children need boundaries. And they need boundaries because they're fallen. And they're going to test those boundaries. Again, there's nothing for you to get angry at. That's part of who they are, but, but you do need to enforce those boundaries. So the big question then is, well, well, how do I do that? And then launches all kinds of stuff that could get me in trouble with mommy bloggers and other kinds of things. But, but, but what, what are appropriate forms of punishment? And I'm sure you've heard all the debates out there. Do we put them in timeout? Do we remove toys? These days, do we remove electronics? Do we take the phone away, which is kind of like Chinese water torture? Um, <laughs> And then there's the ever-controversial, should you spank? So let me, let me say a couple things just right out of the gate. And these are corollary truths like the one I said before. There's a responsibility for children to obey, responsibility of parents, fathers in particular, not to use that sphere of authority in a way that brings out the worst in their kids, but brings out the best in their kids. This too has a corollary. So on the one hand, to those who think you've already made up your mind, you're probably not parents yet, which is why you did, we will never, ever, ever spank our child. That's just, that's just a rule right up front. We're just never going to do that. Okay, so you've, you've established that a priori. That's not going to happen. Um, let me just read you a passage from Proverbs 13, 24, and then just kind of let it, just kind of leave it there. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, when you punish a child in any way, but especially in a way like this, it is heartbreaking, it is gut-wrenching, and if it's not heartbreaking and gut-wrenching, you better stop because you've probably crossed the line. You've definitely crossed the line. But sometimes it's necessary for the good of the child. Now, here's, here's another passage for us to remember Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's Proverbs 22, 6. Literally, what that text says in the Hebrew is train up a child in the way that he is bent. So on the one hand, if you just made up your mind out of the gate, we'll never do this. Well, Scripture actually holds out the possibility that you might have to do that if you're going to be a faithful parent. Conversely, if you grew up in a culture of corporal punishment where that was just the automatic sort of reflexive response, you're neglecting this part, which reminds us that children are different. And I find that interesting because this was written by Jews. Even there, that, that ancient culture of corporate personality in Israel, way more communal than our individualistic world, and yet they still recognize the importance 
of seeing and understanding the individual and understanding that every child is different. Every child has a different destiny. Every child will respond in different ways to various forms of punishment. And so some of you may conversely think, well, spanking is the only punishment and you're going to damage your child because you're making him or her conform to your methods rather than learning about your child, guiding the child, even as you punish them in a way that, again, doesn't bring out the worst in them, it brings out the best in them. Our kids, every one of them were different, okay? And we had to learn this because punishment, if you're a parent, it's not retribution. It's guidance. It's not revenge. It's teaching. If this is retribution, that's called abuse. And it may not even cross a legal line where somebody comes in and holds you legally accountable. Your child will still grow up scarred by that. If you're not doing what you're doing to guide them for their good, again, everything into this kid, what is for their good? And we learned that. Each new kid in the Rainey household was a new adventure in discovering what would work and what would not work. And i I got to be honest with you, I think so much of that is God's design for the sanctification of the parent. I think probably one of the greatest tools God ever gave us for sanctification was marriage. I think the second greatest one was probably having kids, being parents. I'm not saying single people can't be sanctified. I'm not, I'm not saying anything. Paul was single. Paul actually said, it's better for me to remain single. Single people are not saying I'm just saying if you are married, if you are a parent, you need to look at, all right, this next time they spill the milk, next time they get in a fight, next time somebody thinks they got a bigger scoop of ice cream, next time they wreck the car, next time they bring home a D, this is a sanctification opportunity (laughs) for me and for them, okay? And so what I need to do is is bring out the best in them, so, and that that might mean they got to, they got to pay a price, I got to understand this, this comes with consequences, but that discipline individually applied will help send them where God wants them to go. Protection, instruction, discipline. Number four, acceptance. Now I want us to look at a passage very familiar to us probably if you know scripture, but, but I want to observe its teaching in reverse. First Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is love. And Paul's making this observation to demonstrate how we come to maturity in the way of love. But within that observation is an obvious understanding that we sometimes miss, and that's that children are different than adults. It seems obvious enough, but it's been a recurring tension in the West, starting in Victorian Great Britain and all the way up. There are times when we want kids to be seen but not heard, and if they are heard, we need them to sound like adults. And I think we've discovered that kids don't play that part very well, nor should they. Nor should they. You're putting too much of an expectation. They are going to, you know, you're going to dedicate one up here on the stage, and you're going to get all dressed up, ask any parent who's done a parent-child dedication up here on the stage, and you're going to bring those, those, those babies, and, you're going to, and then you're going to bring their five, six-year-old older brother up on stage, and you're, you're doing everything you can to try to concentrate on this very special moment, and big brother's back here fighting some invisible dragon. 
All right? Listen, don't be embarrassed by that. Church family, do not embarrass parents through that. They're acting like they should. I mean, there's something wrong with a little boy if he ain't looking for a dragon to kill. Amen? There's something wrong. And so you're like, let's, let's have some fun with this. Children are different from adults. Another thing they're going to do is they're going to speak without a filter. At the most inopportune times, we never learn more about y'all than when prayer request moment comes in Covenant Kids. I'm telling you, man, they've learned all kinds of stuff about the Rainey family when our kids were smaller and, and were, were students back there. They're going to speak without a filter. They're going to ask hard questions that you're not going to know how to answer, or if you do, you're only going to know the adult answer. Pastor Joel, what's the Trinity? I have seven years of graduate and postgraduate theological education. I can't answer that question for a five-year-old. Right? It's part of the challenge. It's what we do. We're learning from them just like they're learning from us. There's a, there's a part of this pastor that doesn't wonder sometimes if that's why we don't want them around, even in moments like this. I mentioned this, I can't mention this last week. Every fifth Sunday is Family Sunday. The next one is actually in October. We'll be getting ready to close out this series, and we're going to have a moment where we're going to call your children forward, and we want to pray for them. We want to lay hands on them and you together as you stand with them. We, we want to have a milestone moment, but, but too often when we have those moments, parents stay home, and I know why you stay home. I know why you do. Well, I can't just drop them off. Well, when are they ever going to watch mom and dad worship Jesus? When are they ever going to be? You, they're going to be 22, 23 years old, and you're going to wonder, why don't they ever come to church? Because you never brought them. You never brought them. We, even the chances we gave you when they were younger to, to bring them. You, you never brought them. And, and we, but, but church family, listen to me. When they bring their kids in here, you can't be jerking your head around like some nasty-looking codger if they kick the back of your seat. Am I being plain enough? You can't <sighs> sigh really big when one of them's talking behind you. When they're coloring, when they're shuffling around, when they're wiggling, when they're giggling, when they're doing it, listen, yeah, and I get it, yeah, sometimes, parents, sometimes you do it, you need, to, you need to calm down, you're not the center of this show, right, there's a balance here, but, but, but parents shouldn't be embarrassed by this, but it's also a culture that, that has led us to believe that church is a place where once we get there, everybody goes to their rooms, this is the living room right here. This is the den. What's the area of your house where the whole family gathers for Christmas? That's what this room is for us. All right? And every fifth Sunday, that's, that's what we're doing. Or at least that's what we're trying to do. So in the church and in the family, we need a culture that says this is okay. We cherish our children as children. Because you know what they're going to remind us of? They're going to bring a simplicity back into our lives. Because life gets complicated when you have to adult, Right? When we take a noun like adult and we make it a verb, we, we know it's gotten complicated. That's just another way of saying life has gotten complicated. And they bring an, an innocence even back to our lives. In fact, this is interesting. Uh, evolutionary philosophers have admitted openly when it comes to children that it is very difficult to convince small children that there is no God. Did you know that? 
Evolutionary philosophers have a term for this. They call it design prejudice. They said a kid just looks at the world and goes, somebody made this. Right? That's, it's simple. That simplicity has to be built upon. It has to mature. It must never be eliminated. So don't expect them to act like an adult. Even as an adult, let them remember when they were encouraged with the the child's catechism that begins with this question. Little child, who made you? God made me. Let's welcome that. Let's cherish that. So that in our protection, instruction, our discipline, and acceptance, we can give them the most important thing we're after, which is the gospel. Ultimately, we provide all those other things so that they will know this. Matthew 19, 13, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then the corollary to that comes a warning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus cares about kids. And Jesus in Matthew 19, 13 is saying to you, moms, dads, grandparents, older brothers, I, I want your kids. Bring them to me. And he's saying to your kids, I want you. Come to me. Nothing is more important. So are you living and raising your child in such a way that they understand this in the priorities that you set in your home? When there's a conflict between church and some other kind of Sunday activity, this gathering with worship, is that the thing that always loses? It's not the only example, but sports has been a god for many years. And listen, I'd it's my favorite season right now. I was glued to the television set for five hours yesterday. But you need to hear this because your pastor's love for your child. There is, and this is a statistically accurate statement, there is a 0.02% chance that your child will play professional anything. There is a 100% chance your child will stand before Jesus. Are you living and raising your children like that's really true? Does your calendar, the frequency of how you gather, all of that communicate that or does it communicate something different? And all this is important, again, because of who your child is. They are created in the image of God. They are precious. They, cannot, there's, there's no value that can be set on their soul. They are also fallen and separated from God. They are sinners, and Scripture bears out with clarity one of the reasons we struggle with all this and that it's a, it's a, a challenge to our own sanctification is because there's something like, well, they're, they're just influenced wrongly. There's, no, Scripture bears out repeatedly. There's actually something bad in the child that only Jesus can fix. Horace Bushnell was a 19th century theologian, a liberal theologian and a pastor, and he advocated something called Christian nurture. Now, you have to remember that just for context, prior to this idea of Christian nurture, the ideas don't come from nowhere. They come from assumptions. And, and Dr. Bushnell's assumption was what we have to do first, we have to eliminate original sin. We have to eliminate this idea that there's a need for redemption, that that redemption comes through the substitutionary, atoning, bloody death of Jesus. All of that has to go, which is another way of saying just gut the apostolic witness and have a Christianity that really isn't, okay? But, but just nurture the child, and this was the quote, so that he or she never knows a time when he was not a Christian, Do you know what you call someone who never knows a time when they were not a Christian? 
a non-Christian. I'm not saying you got to remember the exact date. I'm not saying you got to remember. But there's some recognition. You know what? I I was not born this way. Jesus redeemed me. Brothers and sisters, there's a reason we sing Amazing Grace, and it ain't because we believe we've always been Christian. There's a reason that we speak of conversion in senses of before and after. There's a reason that we use the same language Jesus uses and tells you, you must be born again. And for that matter, and with all due respect to our dear brothers and sisters in other traditions, there's a reason we keep the baptism waters as far from babies as humanly possible. There's a reason we encourage you when we do something like we did this morning, to keep your unconverted children away from the Lord's table. It's because we love your child. We love your child. Are you parenting in a way that makes it clear to your son or daughter that nothing is more important to them than a transformative, growing relationship with Jesus? So by the time they reach their teens, which is what we'll talk about next week, here's what we want. Not for them to never know a time when they were not a Christian, but that for them to never know a time when they were not completely surrounded by, protected by, encouraged by, taught by people who were. People who love Jesus. People who push them gently toward Jesus. They've never known a time when they didn't have a parent who gave everything they had, including their children, to Jesus. Give these five things. Remember I said last week, you're not guaranteed any particular outcome, but this is the call to faithful parenting at this stage of life. And it is ultimately for this purpose. So that child can be given Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for children. Thank you for a gift that challenges us in so many ways. Thank you for a gift that, just to be candid, seems to come in very short order after our college education and after our uh, progress somewhat in some profession where we feel confident. So thank you for little people that make us remember that we're still dumb so that that we can lean into you, so that we can be, be sanctified, so that we can learn and grow, and so that we can grow and teach them. And so, Lord, as we continue this, this theme of releasing the arrows, I pray for these little ones in our midst, and I pray for their moms and dads. Lord, ready them for this task. Make them faithful for it. Uh, Lord, for those that are wondering when's that next phase going to come, Lord, may they be reminded of the imminency of this moment. It may not feel like it right now, but they're going to blink, and it's going to be over. And so, Lord, may they, may, they, may they steward this moment well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.